from the Faculty of Graduate Studies at York University, this is Grad Life. I'm Will Sloan. Today we're talking to two graduate students from York University's psychology program. A little later we'll talk to a student who's exploring the links between maternal depression symptoms and mother-child detachment. But first, PhD student Alicia Salerno has found that a disturbing number of people with developmental disabilities, particularly autism spectrum disorder, fear interaction with the police. In her study, Police Responses to Developmental Disability, she explores the personal stories of people with disabilities and seeks answers for how to improve relations between the police and the people they serve. I know you studied the relationship between the police and developmental disability. Could you talk a little bit about how that study began and what was the hypothesis going in? I would say that uh, I've been working with people with developmental disabilities for about 10 years now. So it started, I was working with high school uh, age students that had like different learning disabilities and eventually I got into working with people with developmental disabilities and autism. So I noticed that a lot of the students I was coming across had really bad interactions with police. And even if they didn't have a negative interaction, they seemed to have this seemingly irrational fear of law enforcement. Um, And I wondered kind of why that was. Could they articulate it? So some of my students, it was like a fear, like, oh no, I don't want anything to do with the police. My mom tells me not to talk to the police. So I know a lot of it is the parents sometimes, they're scared as well, right? Mm -hmm. They're very nervous about having their children, especially young men, Mm -hmm. uh, interacting with the police and especially disclosing a disability because they're not sure what to do with that. Mm -hmm. We had one particularly really negative interaction which resulted in uh, suicide after one of my students was pulled over. So it really internalized everything the officer had said to him, and I really think part of it was that the officer didn't recognize that he had a disability, which is why he treated him so poorly. So that's kind of where the study came out of. Uh, I also work, I work at Reach Toronto with a group of young adults, and we had a program with them where we had police officers come in um, once every few months, kind of talk to our students about safety, also allowing the officers to interact with them in a safe environment where they could ask questions without feeling like they would be arrested or judged. Uh, the first time I had that session, I had three of my students run out of the room and hide. Wow. Yeah. So it was this kind of instinct that the police are not here to help you, they're here to harm you, mm-hmm. which is really problematic for a vulnerable population because statistically they're more likely to need the police, more likely to be victimized. Mm-hmm. So you have this issue. What's the timeline of the research been? I would say it started in, I believe, it was my second year master's, so 2016 is when I started collecting the data, and I collected data for about a year. Mm-hmm. And what was that data collection process? Could you describe the methodology? Yeah, so um, it was very grassroots, I would say. Sure. And so my initial plan was to go to the police and try and request, I guess, interactions or police records. I had a police consultant with Peel Regional Police, mm-hmm. and they kind of walled us everywhere we went. They didn't want to give us any information. They said, you're never going to get that data, so just forget about it. Uh, so what we did is we started recruitment. So internally, I would email any kind of group related to disability, autism specifically, just blast emails out, all their listservs. Facebook was really successful. And just recruiting people with autism to talk about their experience with the police. So that was the recruitment process. And how did you collect that data? Was it email or workshops? So it was actually an online survey that we developed. And we developed it with some consultants, some autism advocates. Um, so we had this survey and it asked about their lifetime experience with the police. And it asked them to elaborate on one uh, particular interaction of their choosing. Mm-hmm. What were some of the stories you heard? Um, I mean, some of them are pretty disturbing, Mm -hmm. which I think rightfully so because of the sampling. A lot of the people we had that came forward had really uh, negative interactions with the police. Mm -hmm. 
So we had a lot of stories about having meltdowns. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty inherent to having autism, right? The uh, meltdowns are a part of it. Um, the police would get called and they would get restrained as a result of it. Mm-hmm. We also had three of the participants report being assaulted by the police. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a Canada-wide sample, but it was largely Ontario-based. Mm-hmm. So we did have some experiences where there was some allegations of abuse, which is problematic, obviously. What's your takeaway from the findings? What should be done about this? I really think we need uh, informed training, so empirical-based training. So while I was recruiting for this study, I got a lot of emails from organizations saying, oh yeah, we're trying to develop uh, training for police officers, but they were never consulting people with autism. Mm. And I think that was the main issue, is that if you're not consulting the population that's most affected, how are you going to come up with an effective training process? And also, we can't expect police officers to be experts in disability or in mental health. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of my takeaway is we need training that's brief and that's really effective and doesn't expect, doesn't take hours or days or it's a hundred page manual to keep in their cruiser. You need something really effective and you need to involve the community in the development of that. So one thing that we did find is they were really, so our participants, people with autism, were really unhappy with their police experiences. And they weren't reporting negative experiences, so it's not like they were being arrested or they did something illegal. So oftentimes it was like a pretty innocuous interaction, but they weren't happy with how it was dealt with. We found that in most cases, they never told the officer that they had a disability. So they are hesitant to disclose they have autism. And this is consistent with some other research out of the UK. They find this hesitancy because they don't know what the police officers are doing with this information. They don't know if they say, and a lot of the times it's the parent telling them, don't tell the officer you have autism you have a disability i mean that's remarkable because my initial instinct would be that would be the first thing you tell the police officer so they would have some context for who they're talking to why are they so afraid of saying that i see it a lot um with more like racialized men i feel Mm -hmm. and i think it's rightfully so that parents are fearful of what the what the police are going to do with that information their approach is kind of just avoid the police so I think something has to be done as well with the autism community to make them feel more secure with their police service so they feel like they can really get services when they need it. One thing we found was less than half of the participants said they would be comfortable calling the police in an emergency situation. And I think that's really alarming in itself, that we really need to work on improving relations between the disability community more broadly and the police. And maybe involving them in the training is one step towards making that relationship better. I think we've all become so much more aware in recent years of people who have been in crisis and have had bad interactions with the police. There's been so much talk about how there needs to be better training. Has training improved? I would say there are signs of improvement. I do see a lot of efforts to come up with training, but they're very separated. It doesn't seem like there's one. There should, In my opinion, there should be one focused uh, effort. So a lot of organizations coming together, using their resources to come up with this training, and that's not what I'm seeing. So I always get emails about different training that have come out. Also, one of the big problems is police often see autism as like a mental illness, and it's not a mental illness. So they'll consider it as, oh yeah, I I have received training in mental health or mental first aid, but it's not the same thing. So I think that's a, a big problem as well. Did you ever eventually get any participation from the police? Not yet, but we did get an email a few okay. weeks ago from a police officer and asking. An email from an email. A, a police officer. Yes, yeah. one email from one police officer asking if we could share a paper because obviously it was behind a paywall, so they wanted to see a copy of paper, which is really encouraging that they're actually reaching out to us. Mm-hmm. So what we're actually doing now is we just wrote up a study. So the data collection, we collected a lot of data. Mm-hmm. So the paper that we published um, this year, so it was published, in, I believe, in the summer, 
that focused on the nature of the interactions. So mm-hmm. what types of police interactions are people with autism having and uh, their perceptions of the interactions, mm-hmm. right? So we really went into detail about were you restrained during this interaction or what were your lifetime experiences like? In what context have you interacted with the police under? We had also collected a lot of data on recommendations for the police. So we just wrote up this paper and it's currently under review and it's on recommendations for the police from the perspective of the autism community. So it's targeted recommendations, really concrete, a section on challenges. So challenges as reported by people with autism, this is what they find challenging about police interactions. This is what they believe would present problems in a police interactions. And here's the recommendations as to how they think uh, that should be solved. What are the next steps? So the next step is hopefully getting that paper published (laughs) and then bringing this information to the police. So the reason we really tried to write this paper in a very, in lay terms, we really want it to be understandable by everyone. Mm -hmm. But I think the paper we're just writing up now, it's under review, is really targeted in terms of the police. It's very easy to digest Mm -hmm. and the recommendations can very easily be translated into training. So that's our next step. So we have presented this data at academic conferences, and there there are practitioners at academic conferences, but I really think for it to be effective, this data needs to be brought right to the police. So they need to be aware of it. And I have received some attention from, I would say, associations that are associated with the police in terms of bringing this to them and, and creating some sort of training or presentation. So that's really where I'm gonna be going next with this. If I can ask a little bit about your trajectory, you yeah. mentioned you worked with developmental disability before yeah. this. How did you get to this point? Oh, I'm not really sure. I feel like this is kind of something that found me. So when I was in high school, I started tutoring. My first, I guess, tutoree <laughs> was uh, a young man. He had really severe learning disabilities, and I did really well. And I kind of became known as somebody who was really good at working with people with uh, learning differences. What is that skill? Can you summarize it? Patience. Patience, okay. Patience and flexibility, for sure. I find like my teaching style is very flexible and very creative. I, I do allow them to kind of wander or fidget or within reason, right? And I try to be very personal with my students. I really want them to have a fun experience learning. So that's pretty much how I got to this point, mm-hmm. is I really do enjoy teaching. I have a very flexible teaching style. And I do student-centered teaching. So. I want them to come up with the questions and the answers, not me just sit there and lecture them on what they need to know. What's next for you when you graduate? I'm not sure. I'm kind of torn. I love research, but I also really love teaching. So I guess ideally I'd like to have some sort of academic position, but I am really interested in doing training for the police. I'm really interested in evidence-based policing. So I kind of have two different trajectories and I'm hoping I can be in a position where I can do both, where I'm teaching and I'm also somehow working with the police to better I guess their training and their uh, methods. Doctoral student Shaley Bedovinich is part of a research team led by psychology professor Rebecca Pillai Riddell that explores links between maternal depression symptoms and mother child detachment in early life. As we all know, the bond between mother and child, especially in the early years, is one of the strongest forces on earth. So, how does this study illuminate the challenges that both parties face with attachment and detachment? Here's Shaley. The study explores links between maternal depression and mother-child attachment in early life because mm-hmm. I'm a complete layman <laughs> and I'm totally, totally dumb on things like this. Can we define our terms a little bit? For sure. What is maternal depression? What is mother-child attachment? 
Okay, so in the study that I did for my thesis, we were actually specifically doing um, a meta-analysis, so where we're pulling the results from multiple different studies. Um, and so we were interested in looking at the relationship, as you said, between maternal depression and in our context, we were kind of conceptualizing that as depressive symptoms because a lot of the studies that we were reviewing, they weren't necessarily looking at mothers who have clinical depression, so a diagnosed depressive disorder, but they instead looked at mothers in community samples, gave them questionnaires that would assess for different symptoms of depression, um, so related to things like their mood, um, and then it would give them a score on that depressive measure. So in that case, it's not necessarily diagnosing them, but you can get a score um, and you can compare to different cutoffs to see whether they fall in the clinical range or not. And where did these studies come from? Most of them, I'd say, were based between the U.S. and Canada. So there's a couple large data sets. So one, for example, in the States, the NICHD, so hopefully I get this acronym right, but it's National Institute of Child Development. Or child and human development, I think. Um, so basically, they did this huge longitudinal study. They had over a thousand mothers um, from all across the U.S., different communities, and they followed these mothers and, and their children from the time that the mothers gave birth up until at least, and for my purposes, I was looking at up to age three, but I know it extended beyond even into the teenage years. And typically, did these studies sort of climax when the children would go to daycare? Yep, so there was, I think, a lot of different major time points for data collection, and definitely preschool age was one of them. And I think in the child development world, it's a really interesting time to study because it's the first time that children are sort of being exposed to new social context. So for the first few years of life, you're spending, or for most kids, you're spending a lot of their time maybe with one or two primary caregivers, whether that's the mother, the father, other family members, friends, or some kind of a daycare facility. But then when they get to kind of this age, preschool age, they're going to be, for many of them, in a classroom and daycare setting um, where they're being exposed to other peers their age, other adults, new adults in their life. So it's a really a time where their social connections really explode. And so it's a time of transition for them. So a lot of developmental researchers are really interested to see how they kind of cope and react to that. Do you know what the methodology for a lot of these studies was? How much time did the researchers spend with the parents? How did they recruit the parents? So I think if for the case of the study that I just spent some time talking about, they recruited mothers, I believe, in hospital. So mothers who are giving birth or about to give birth, asked them if they wanted to participate. They screened them for some eligibility criteria and then families participated in different ways throughout the child's development. So obviously it's not feasible to follow um, thousands of families and bring them into the lab all and, the time. And move in with the family. Yeah, <laughs> no. So they so they had questionnaires. That was one, they, uh, one thing that they did, bringing them into the laboratory for different assessment procedures, mailing out questionnaires to the families, getting questionnaire reports, I think possibly from teachers as well. Those are all different methodologies that could have been used. What were some of the conclusions you reached? So in my purposes, so looking at relationships between maternal depression symptoms and attachment, um, and I'm, I'm realizing I haven't really defined what attachment is, but just to give you a quick kind of snapshot about what we're talking about. So when you think about a parent-child relationship, there's so many different facets to that relationship. There's their interactions um, in positive circumstances, so the parent's ability to help the child learn, teach them new things, expose them to different exciting experiences. Um, and then what the attachment relationship is really getting at is the these interactions between parent and child in distressing contexts. So it's looking at the parent's ability to really respond to the child when the child is in need of comfort. Mm. So for example, the measure that was used in all the studies that was included that were included in my review was what we call the strange situation procedure. And so it's very familiar to people in the world of developmental psychology, but essentially this is a procedure where you bring a parent and child, a caregiver and child, into the lab. Um, you have them playing together in a room, and then when the researcher prompts them either by knocking on the door or sending a message in 
the parents um, ask to leave the room. So they leave the child um, alone in the room or with a stranger that they don't know um, and seeing how the child, the child copes with that. But kind of the key moment is looking at after the parent's been removed from the room, what happens when they return and reunite with the child? How does the child respond to that? So ideally what you see in what we call a secure attachment relationship, that's kind of the ideal type of um, attachment bond, um, is that the child will be distressed by their caregiver leaving because that's kind of a source of comfort for them and protection. So it'll be distressing for that to happen, but they will be comforted by being reunited, reunited with their caregiver. I'm sure there's probably a case where a child can be too distressed yeah. or maybe not distressed enough. For sure. So what you're referring to sounds a lot like um, some of the insecure attachment types that we talk about. And so two specifically come to mind when you say that. So there's one that we call an avoidant attachment. So this might be a child who, when the parent comes back into the room, they might avoid, they might not go near the parent. Um, they're kind of seen as inhibiting um, their reaction. So they're kind of downplaying in a way their emotional reaction to the situation. And so they're not really seeking out the caregiver to support them. Um, they're kind of being a little bit more independent. And then the other category we talk about is ambivalent, which is, again, what you kind of got at with them kind of over-expressing and being, um, it can look at like being a little bit dramatic and really not being comforted by when the cover, um, when the caregiver comes back. So it's not only are they really distressed, which is considered to be adaptive, but it's the fact that they're not able to calm down. Even when the caregiver is there with them, they're not able to calm down from that. So those are kind of some of the suboptimal outcomes. And then the most, what it's considered to be the most suboptimal outcome um, in terms of attachment, and there's a lot of research supporting this idea, is one called disorganized attachment. So this is a child who hasn't really formed a coherent pattern of responding. So they might do a lot of different things in the situation, in the strange situation procedure that I talked about. So they might kind of walk backward towards the parent, or they might kind of swap roles with the parent in a way that they try to console the parent or they might speak in a punishing tone to the parent so you might see some role reversals um, but the idea there is that they haven't really formed you're not seeing this caregiver child relationship where the child is really kind of seeking out and using the parent and able to depend on them in a reliable way do the studies monitor how the parents react I mean I'm sure there are probably some parents who get very distressed maybe too mm -hmm. distressed when they're separated from their child yeah for sure so there are definitely studies that do look at that and that wasn't really built into what what I was doing there but that's something that I'm certainly very interested in seeing how a parent reacts um, to seeing their child being distressed and so that's something that I'm hoping to tackle a little bit more in my current research. Tell me about your current research. Sure I'm now um, in my PhD at York I'm going into my in my second year and so my research I'm in the ouch lab under the supervision of Dr. Rebecca Play Riddell and so we do a lot of our, um, our studies in a vaccination context so when babies are getting their vaccination needs needles. We look at how parents react to that, how children react to that, um, and right now we're focusing on the second year of life. So following children and their caregivers from 12 months up to 24 months. And so what I'm really interested in getting to know is how parents respond, how different parents respond to that situation. Because as you mentioned, seeing your child in distress can be certainly very distressing for the parent to see. So we're looking at um, things such as parents' heart rate, um, the emotions that they express, um, and then as well looking at their behavior. So we're measuring their heart rate so we can kind of track how they're physiologically responding, but I'm really interested in seeing how that in turn relates to what the parent actually does. So are there parents who respond better, are able to better comfort their child versus those who are not? And we know that there are some parents who use more what we call insensitive behaviors. So 
behaviors that interfere with their child's ability to kind of calm down. And I'm interested in knowing what kind of leads parents to, to enacting those behaviors. How can we predict who's going to use the better behaviors versus the behaviors that are um, not so helpful? With parent-child attachment slash detachment, are there sort of consistent parental behaviors that can lead to a less desirable outcome? There are definitely a number of different behaviors. So some that come to mind is in terms of their emotional responsiveness. So a parent who sees that their child's distressed and doesn't really acknowledge that their child is, is upset, um, we call that a type of insensitive behavior. So when the child's feeling like their emotions aren't being noticed or kind of acted on by their parent. So I guess talking about the flip of that, the best case scenario is when you have a child who's feeling distressed and the parent says, hey, I see that you're really upset right now. And you know what? I, I'm here with with you we're gonna get through this together so really kind of being with their child and, ex and experiencing that emotion with them but still kind of having kind of the upper hand and being able to guide and, and navigate the child through that what would you say the big takeaways of that study are so I think in terms of the study that we're talking about now with the maternal depression, I think the takeaway is that we really need to do a good job of screening for parents who might be at risk of having mental health challenges early in life. Because my study was looking at depressive, or my review was looking at depressive symptoms over the first three years of life and how they relate to children's attachment behaviors at age three. So knowing that, one of the things that we found across a lot of the studies was that even if we're measuring, um, if we're looking at parent symptoms during the first year of the child's life, for example, that still has associations with how the child is doing at age three. So what that tells me is that these are potentially long-standing influences that we really need to act early to try and intervene and support. So I think the number one takeaway is that we need to have a better way of screening for parents who might need some more support, which is a really difficult thing to do because they may not have interaction with a mental health professional at that point in their life. They're busy caring for a baby, right? So we have to find creative ways of sort of building that into the primary care setting, so when the family's coming into the doctor, figuring out what's the best way to identify these parents who are in need of some extra support and what can we actually do to intervene and support them. For more information about the Faculty of Graduate Studies, go to gradstudies.yorku.ca. Thanks for listening.